Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Thank you. Well done. We call that noodling in the business. That's what that was. Expertly accomplished. Um, so, so this is all sun damage, and there's this chemo cream you put on, and it draws the damage, like cancer cells up and kills them. So children, wear your sunscreen, Hannah. If you only knew the battles that raged over sunscreen in our house, you'd look really cute with this in your 40s. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mike. I'm so glad you're here. If you're new, we welcome you. If you're online, hello. We have been meandering our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what we're calling the upside-down kingdom, as Jesus explores it in distinction against the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus proclaims his kingdom and then contrasts the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who were thought to be the most righteous people, Uh, at that time, with the righteousness that Jesus himself embodies and proclaims. And so we've been looking at different antitheses, is what they're called. You've heard it said, but I tell you, it's what we thought was a, a light command turns out to be a heavy command, where Jesus comes to fulfill the law and show us the heart of Torah. And so he's giving us examples, and we've talked about lust and anger and oaths and divorce and all sorts of Uh, really like relevant to human life kind of stuff. And today is no exception to that. But before we get to Matthew 5, we're going to start in the book of Judges, which is, you know, one of our favorites. We all, we all love it. Uh, We play the board game. It's fantastic. Which, which sin did Israel commit here? You know, and then you just guess and it's fantastic. That's not a game and we don't play it, but go ahead and fire up Judges 15. This is a, a little story of Samson, not one we usually share with the flannel graph to our kids, but it illustrates something. Um, later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. And men, we know exactly this situation, correct? It used to, you know, it's flowers now, young goat then, not a problem. He said, I'm going to go to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. Now, this is a grave insult, particularly because he brought a goat. The, the dad says, I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Women totally valued in those days. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to what? To get even with them. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, uh, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. So this was the time of harvest, so he ruined for that year their entire economy. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told, Samson, the Timnite son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Awesome. This is the Lord's holy word. Uh, Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, 
which is a great line, right? Since you did this in response to the thing I did, but he doesn't include that part. It's just, well, since you did this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. They went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock and said, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to provoke them? He answered, I merely did to them what they did, what? To me, totally justified in his mind. They said, hey, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. They bound him up with two ropes, led him up from the rock. As he approached the city, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes in his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Let's close in prayer. For those of you that like, aren't huge fans of the Bible, it's these stories that are why, correct? You're like, what in the world? The reason I, I, I wanted to begin with it is because it illustrates something that was very common in the ancient Near East, namely that cycles of vengeance could go from personal insult and escalate rapidly and for generations to come. And so we start with an insult of a father to a son-in-law, that, you know, he then uh, ties foxes together and burns their economy. They then burn her and her father. Well, because they did that, you know, I will do to them. And then he murders the thousand men. And the thing just keeps escalating and widening. And this is the way vengeance worked in the ancient Near East, right? And for us, it's the story of the Hatfields and McCoys, if you're of a certain age, Right? This is just kind of, we're familiar with this sort of generational conflict. In the Old Testament, because this was the way vengeance worked, that it always widened and it always escalated. There were laws in place to restrict vengeance. So let me read you three examples of this. The first from Leviticus, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the exact same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Next. In Exodus, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Or in Deuteronomy, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, believe it or not, these laws were, at the time, a step forward. <laughs> and they were a step forward because they did, they did a couple of things that were very innovative at the time. The first thing they did is they capped vengeance. So whatever the harm was to you, you could harm back to just that amount. It kept it from escalating and widening. The second thing it did is it brought personal insults into the sphere of law so that instead of you taking eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the, the elders of the community or the courts as they developed later on 
would exact that justice. So it takes it out of the private sphere between you and me or in our families and brings it into the embryonic legal system of the day. Make sense? The biggest thing about it, though, is um, if you're familiar with the Code of Hammurabi history buffs out there, uh, the, the Code of Hammurabi has a very similar law. This was a, a very common law in the in ancient Near East. But the difference was here that it, there was no distinction of class. So the Code of Hammurabi, rich people would be punished less severely than poor people would. Here, the declaration was, show no pity. That meant, it doesn't matter who you are, if you've harmed, you will be harmed back to the exact amount. Makes sense so far? And why were these commands given? Well, they were given uh, to prohibit or inhibit situations like Samson's that we just read, where violence would escalate between nations or families or clans or tribes or whatever. So, I know this is absolutely fascinating. These laws reflect something in the ancient Near East called the law of reciprocity. And the law of reciprocity is very simply this. It makes total sense. It still operates today. Who do you love? You love those who love you. You hate those who hate you. You give to those who can repay you. You honor those who can repay you. Right? And then you harm those who harm you. And the, the command, uh, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, that's just an expression of this reciprocity, right? You love people who love you. You are permitted to harm people who harm you, but only to the exact injury. Hate those who hate you, right? Those who exclude you, you are to exclude. It's just the way the ancient Near East worked as an honor and shame culture. Now, any questions about this? We still, we still have it today. If somebody... If somebody at your job gives you a Christmas present and you have not given them a Christmas present, is, isn't there a sense of like social debt? You feel like you, you're kind of obligated to go back now? Or, or somebody, parents, they invite your kid to their kid's birthday party, but you had no intention of inviting them to your kid's birthday party. Who's going to get an invite now? Well, they are, right? I mean, when, when salespeople wine and dine potential clients, what are they doing? They're kind, of, they're kind of getting us in social debt so that when it comes time to make a purchase, we'll consider them first. This is all the law of reciprocity. This is the way the ancient Near East uh, worked, and it literally was the gasoline that fueled every social relationship, all right? You only give to people who can repay you. You only honor those people who honor you. You only love people who love you. If people harm you, you harm them back, and you're commanded to. You're commanded to show no pity. The way that you did that is you take it to the courts. And very often what happened in ancient Israel wasn't that there would be a bunch of eyeless and toothless people running around. Uh, they, you would pay monetary fines based so, so the rabbis had a list of, you know, if a, a life cost this much, depending if it was a life of an equal, a life of a slave, a life of somebody else, or if, if somebody took an animal, you'd pay back four times the amount, and so on. So there was a monetary value that was attached to this. Now, any questions on all this nonsense? It's super important, though, for our text. Awesome. Do you get it? Okay, reciprocity was super important. Now, to Matthew chapter 5. Oh, oh, before we get there. No, go back. Dave, yes, you were right all along, Dave. I'll never doubt you again. <laughs> so slide in between this one and Matthew 5. Now, this is, this is the most important thing I'm going to say today, all right? 
That law of reciprocity had two facets. Love those who love you, harm those who harm you. All right, it is a positive facet and a negative facet. All right? What Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to take, we're going to take two weeks to look. First, he's going to look at the negative part of the law of reciprocity. To, to people who harm those who harm us, Jesus is going to offer a teaching today about offering instead creative goodness instead of returning evil for evil. Next week, we're going to deal with the, with the positive idea of the law of reciprocity, which is love those who only love you, Jesus is going to say, but even tax collectors do that. You're to love even your enemy. Right? So these two weeks of teaching that are often very misunderstood are dealing with both sides of the way social relations were naturally conceived of in ancient Israel. Make sense? So yes, John. Oh, well. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've received all your reminders to repeat the question. Why, why, yes, loving reminders all week. Repeat the question, repeat the question. Um, why do we associate eye for an eye with God? And this, this is, this is going to provoke even more questions that we don't have time to answer. But here's my take. The Old Testament law isn't God's ideal. It is triage. God's ideal is Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. The rest of it is triaging of people already broken. So eye for eye was intended to limit a people who were already bent towards violence and vengeance. But that was never what God intended, and that's where Jesus is going. As he did with divorce, as he does with murder, as he does with lust, as he does with oath-taking, he is revealing the heart of the commands. So, you know, it was enough, because literally... The, the law reads as, you must take tooth for tooth, right? There's no choice. Show no pity. Jesus is going to introduce, a, he's going to question that as the law. So remember, we're dealing with two, two kinds of statements in the Bible, the real and the ideal. There are ideal statements where we get a glimpse of God's heart for what he intended for all of us, and then there are real statements that are like, since you guys are determined to punish each other, then let's have a law that at least limits it. Since you're determined to marry multiple wives, let's make sure we take care of the wives you already have. Does that make sense? In August, we're going to do a series on what the Bible is and how the Bible works, that it will explain this more. Um, because I think for a lot of us, we read the Bible very flatly, and we think all the words of the Bible are words that God says to us and approves of. And I think very often the Bible is describing the condition of fallen humanity and not recommending these stories to us. So we just have to be super careful. We can't just read it as if the whole thing is flat. The di different genres, different narrative structures, we have to really pay attention. If you go into Barnes & Noble, if they even have that anymore, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't go to the fiction section and read it the same way you read the nonfiction section. Right? You don't go to the science fiction section and read it the same way as you do the science section. And so very often we approach our Bible as if it was just one type of literature when in actuality it's a Barnes and Noble kind of bound together in 66 books. Great question. A couple of, um, also speaking of questions, I was supposed to say at the beginning, 
we have uh, the jury, the, there, we spent 25 minutes on questions at the 11 o'clock service last week. We were talking about, you know, does God speak and all of those, how, how we use religious language. And so we did a podcast on that topic to answer some of the questions people had. If you're interested in that, it's Journey Now podcast. Kevin's running that. And that's a great place to explore some of these themes. And then Kevin also runs a conversation table uh, or group um, at the 11 o'clock service down there if you're interested to discuss these things more. All right, back to the sermon, unless there are any other thoughts or questions. That law of reciprocity is super important to understand because it, it, so much of Jesus' teaching is contradicting that. It's not just dropped in a vacuum. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, my friends, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's quoting from three Old Testament passages. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Ooh! All right, now, my friends, the Greek of the text literally reads, because you can read it in English and be like, oh, okay, so we're just supposed to be passive doormats. Not at all. The, the, the text literally reads, do not compete with evildoers in their evil. Right? And we're wondering, okay, well that helps a little bit, but what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to give us four examples of what that looks like, and they're gravely misunderstood in American culture. All right, uh, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you not, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And here is where I think a lot of us get into trouble and think, oh, okay, so we just let evil happen to us. And any response is bad. Like Jesus is counseling us to be passive in the face of evil. But Jesus was not passive in the face of evil. So he gives us four examples. Now, we're going to spend the most time on the first one because it's just very much misunderstood. John, why don't you come up for a second? Let's talk about slapping in the ancient world. Maybe we'll practice. All right, stand right there. <laughs> I chose someone smaller. Um, all right, in the ancient world, physical violence was permitted in, in a way that provoked insult. So, um, for instance, and I know this is really tricky and it's going to take some explaining, but the idea is this. If you were dealing with a social equal, okay, and you hit them with a closed fist, the punishment for that was four days' wages, according to the Mishnah. If you're dealing with a social equal and you slap them on their left cheek with an open hand, the punishment for that is 200 days wages. If you slap somebody on the right cheek with the back of your hand, the punishment was 400 days wages. And the difference wasn't one punch is harder than another, it was that back of the hand slapping is degrading and only to be done from social superiors to social inferiors. All right? So when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, this is so important. Two huge things. First, he's dealing in the realm of personal insult. 
He's not dealing with war. He's not dealing with police. He's not dealing with self-defense. Do not ask any of those questions. We can have other conversations about those things another time. This is insult. So somebody says something mean about you on Facebook. That's kind of an equivalent. You know, I don't know. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and you take it personally. All right? When Jesus says, when someone slaps your right cheek, he has a very specific scenario in mind. The only way, this is John's right cheek, very handsome. The only way, the only way to smack his cheek with my right hand, my left hand in the ancient world was my hygiene hand. You did not ever use that in social settings, if you know what I'm saying. This, this was the hand I used for everything, the right hand. All right, now, the only way to slap his right cheek is how? Backhanded, in a shaming manner, correct? So what does he do if I slap him and all of these scenarios assume an audience. This is an honor-shame culture. All of these scenarios are public. If I backhand him and slap his right cheek, if he offers the other cheek to me, what has he done? He's forced me, if I'm going to slap him again, to slap him as an equal. Do you see that? This is degrading. This you would only hit an equal like this. And I know it's weird they have rules about slapping. Okay? I just, I know. I know. But I'm, I'm telling you, this, this is what Jesus is envisioning. A scenario where you are degraded publicly with a backhand slap. And instead of fighting back or running away in an honor-shame culture to offer your other cheek so that the only way you could be slapped again would be as an equal. That's what it means to do not compete with evildoers. He's introduced a dynamic into our honor-shame conflict that changes how I have to respond to him. Do you see that? No, I need more. Like, this is a really big deal. This is just not about being a doormat. This is about responding with creative goodness to evil in ways that force the oppressor to honor your dignity. Oh, it's absolutely genius. Well done. Yep, yep. We'll do more slapping next week. It'll be fantastic. So that was one of the scenarios. Any questions on that? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yes. So, sorry. Yes, Pete. <laughs> Is that the one where they say you'll, you'll heap coals on their head? Yes, yeah, so that's from Paul quoting from Psalms. And it's the idea that, and we all know this, right? When we've been jerks to somebody and they're perfectly kind to us, there is a little bit of a social shame there, right? Instead of when they don't match our hostility, it kind of wakes us up to, oh, I really was kind of being a jerk, right? And, and it, if they match our hostility, then it just further justifies the reason I'm hostile to begin with, right? That's what Samson was doing. Well, since they did that, right? So great question. I saw one more over here. Nope. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It feels like we're shifting from being a doormat to healthy boundaries. And it even, now you're, you've still been insulted in the eyes of the community. So you haven't taken that part away. But to turn the other cheek meant, if you're going to do it again, you can only hit me as an equal would hit an equal. 
I just love that. So absolutely, absolutely. But in an honor-shame culture, it's even beyond boundaries a little bit. It's about, because the community is watching, and there are some commentators who will look at these examples and say the community will actually intervene when you don't have to protect your personal honor. So let's go to the next one real quick. Uh, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, shirt and coats were not what they wore in the first century. They had undergarments and outer garments. So the, the scenario is there's a bank, a creditor, that is suing a poor person for their undergarment. In the Old Testament, you were not allowed to sue a poor person for their outer garment because your outer garment also functioned, if you were poor, as a blanket. So when Jesus says, if someone is so bloodthirsty that they are suing you for your undergarment, give them your outer garment too, which means you are what? You are naked. Now, there are massive taboos in Judaism against being naked in public. And of course, that would be a grave insult to your honor. But what would it do to the creditor who's suing you? What would the community do in response to that? The community would give you clothes or force the creditor to give you back both your undergarment and your cloak. Since, since being naked publicly was so degrading. There were strong taboos against being naked publicly and forcing someone into nakedness. So what have you just done to a bloodthirsty creditor? You've shamed them into withdrawing their suits by giving you both the garments back. Oh, it's so genius. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, this has been so, like, cliched into, hey, guys, let's go the extra mile and be really nice to people. The Romans, who you hated. Let's say Russia invades America. Okay? Red Dawn all over again. Without Patrick Swayze, which is a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, we are, we are hurting, and that is a generational joke for those 45 and over. But doggone it, it's the time for Gen X to ascend. Okay? It was our Super Bowl party. Sorry. All the close to 50-year-olds are like, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, were what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, Patrick Swayze, of course. So let's say Russia invades America, and we hate them. I mean, they, they torture us. They publicly terrorize us. There are, there are public executions all throughout the countryside. And then they introduce a law that says, if any of them is marching, and they ask you or tell you to carry their equipment for one mile, you have to do that. How popular is that law, do you think? Yeah, not so much, right? This is not like Jesus just going, yeah, go the extra mile, guys. Just be really nice. This is like if a hated enemy compels you, which they could, to walk the Roman a thousand steps, which is how they marked a mile, offer to do another when you're at the end of the first one. Now, in an honor-shame culture, what, what, what does that do to the dynamic does that keep you victimized? Does that keep you passive? No, what have you just said? To them, this is nothing to me, right? 
off to go to. And, and very often we have some historical accounts of Romans grabbing their kit back from Christians who offered to do this because it was shaming to the Romans to permit that. Again, illustrations of creative goodness. One more. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So we're doing a garage sale as a community in obedience to this command and we're all just gonna give each other stuff. I'm looking for a hot tub. All right, so we'll just show up with this verse. No, lending, ma'am, don't leave in the middle of the hot tub joke. <laughs> so giving in the ancient world and lending in the ancient world was so much different. This isn't about your neighbor coming over to borrow your lawnmower. All right? Giving was a way that social superiors would create social indebtedness to social inferiors. So you would give gifts like the Godfather would. And what would you ask in return? That when I need something from you, you give it. So Jesus is inviting us to be people who give without the social obligation of repayment from socially inferior people. Make sense? All right, now, any questions on these four? Like, we went really quickly through them, but we're all trying to illustrate what does it mean to not resist. Susie Lynn! Someone texted right now? Oh, my goodness. You got to repeat, repeat the question, Susie. Get a microphone, come on. It's because we love our online viewers. We love our online viewers, yes. Is Jesus more concerned about getting us to the ideal and bringing the kingdom or helping us realize how far we are from that ideal and thus resting and relaying in him for our righteousness and peace? Oh, that's such a great question. Whoever texted. Now, we're going to go maybe three minutes a field, and then we will come back, all right? The words of the Sermon on the Mount have been understood in a bunch of different ways over the course of church history. Shocking. There are theological traditions that look at the words of the sermon and think they don't apply to public life, only to the private devotions of your heart. There are some people that look at these words and say, it's only about the millennial kingdom. These aren't words today. There are other people, and, and this is what the questioner is asking, there are other people who see, listen, God never really intended us to live this. He's just showing us how much we need Jesus. I personally, and, and feel free to make up your own mind on this always, but I personally very much disagree with that because at the very end of the sermon, Jesus says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. What's the assumption there? These words were meant to what? Be put into practice. It's like when Moses gives the Torah and he says, this isn't too far away from you. It's not up in the sky somewhere, it's just right here. Now, the reason these words seem so ridiculous is because they're counter to all of our normal inclinations. Correct? But I think Jesus very much 
invites us to live this way, not as some religious duty, but as an invitation to be fully human. So I would say, yes, of course, the word, these words do show us how righteous God is. No question. But they are an invitation to take those words upon ourselves, not out of guilt or not out of moral duty, but rather out of invitation. Because what Jesus has done is he is the first human being that has ever truly imaged God, right? We were created to be images and likenesses of God, and we failed at that. So we image all sorts of other things now. Jesus, we're told, is the one true image. He's the one that actually fulfills the vocation given to human beings. And the invitation in living this way is to fulfill that vocation ourselves. Great question. Now, anything else real quick before we, we, we move on? Yeah, Tim. Tim. Yes. Yeah. No, it's very, it was very much the law of reciprocity. Spoken into, repeat the question. Our friend Tim is asking, hey, in Genesis, doesn't God say to Abram, hey, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And I want to say, absolutely, that, is, that was the teaching in the Old Testament. Absolutely, the, the three passages we looked at from Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy were all that way. Harm those who harm, bless those who bless. Now, there were hints that that wasn't the ideal, of course. But when Jesus comes, this is his most radical teaching these next two weeks, right? Instead of, instead of saying, show no pity and make sure you exact vengeance, He's like, you don't have to exact vengeance anymore, but you can respond with creative goodness. It's a massive shift. So I don't see a contradiction there, although I can see why people would absolutely. I think that the law of reciprocity is perfectly expressed in that generational promise to Abram. And you see it expressed to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, right? The, the nations that harmed them will be harmed. The nations that bless them will be blessed. No question. But it's a, it, it, it shows how severe the correction that Jesus is giving is. Does that answer? Yeah, yeah. okay, that's not confidence building. All right. <laughs> All right. Why does this matter to us? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we happen to be among a people who are really petty about personal insults. I mean, we have words for them like road rage. Right? Like we respond, if the law of reciprocity were written today, show no mercy. Respond tweet for tweet, post for post. Right? I mean, my goodness. The, the adults, how many of us waste huge amounts of life on social media if having to respond to every dumb thing that's said or having to respond that every, to every mean thing that is said or take traffic, right? Cut off for cut off, finger for finger. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm talking to Kevin Dixon <laughs> right here. And so the invitation is, when your personal honor is insulted, to grow beyond the need to defend it, to rather be insulted publicly than to respond in kind 
to the evil person who's done that to you. Again, this is the arena of personal insult. There's somebody who says a passive-aggressive comment to you in a meeting, and you want to snap back. What if we instead pause for a second and said, God, what are creative ways of responding? Like one of the ways I've actually tried to practice this is in traffic settings. Where instead, so somebody cuts me off, I will literally say, God, would you bless them? And I mean it not in the Southern way. I mean it in like the real way. Or there have been times I've cut somebody off and they pull up next and they roll their window down and they're ready to go. And I'm ready to go too, but instead I say, I am so sorry, I made a mistake back there, I apologize, I'll be more careful. And then they're still furious, but there's nowhere to go. (laughs) Nowhere to go. But I mean, look at the ways in which, you know, whether it's around masks, we had this whole mask phase where we were insulting each other. We have social media that's just gone insane with escalating and, and widening. A friend of mine practices something called rhetorical nonviolence, where if somebody, if somebody says something nasty about them, you just don't respond and let the community respond. A lesson I've learned recently to just sit and allow other people to defend. And so the idea, my friends, is not some onerous, oh my goodness, I mean we can't, no, it's the interruption of what is normal so that the kingdom, the upside downness of the kingdom might be given room in our imaginations to breathe. Married couples, how many of your fights proceed exactly the same way? The same insults, the same, you know, the same comments. It's like you could literally play back the argument from three years ago and it would sound very similar. And so what happens in a marriage or in a family if one person decides to respond with creative goodness instead of insult for insult, passive comment for passive comment? So for us today, we want to just take time to reflect When we take the Lord's Supper as we do together, this is the invitation into that upside down kingdom. What we're celebrating, it's like why we call Good Friday good. Who does that? Right? It's a horrible day, and yet it's good. Victory came out of what looked like defeat. For us, what looks like weakness turns out to be strength. And so we are all in situations right now where we've responded in the normal way. And so I wonder, as we go around the room, uh, around the stations, we have you know, the communion elements. We invite you all to take those. But I wonder if you wouldn't take some time, if you're right in the middle of something, or you have something fresh in mind, that is simply an invitation for the Spirit of God to interrupt the normal way that you would respond in those sorts of situations. And would you invite God to show you some creative way of being good and returning goodness in that moment? And you may not even want to, and that kind of is the point, right? That we become transformed into people who are not so easily insulted, who are not so easily offended, and who are not so easily provoked to retaliation. And if you're anything like me, that takes a whole lot of work. So we begin by just saying to the Lord, Lord, expand my imagination. Break me out of the rut. 
so that I might even have just a second of pause before I respond the normal way. So we're gonna take the next few minutes to eat the bread and the cup together, to write down prayer requests if you'd like, to sing and refresh our imaginations with words to, uh, to music. Um, but before we do any of that, I just wanna pray over us and um, as we sit and kind of wrestle with what this means. God, we, <laughs> we're so grateful that, um, that you don't treat us this way. We're so grateful for grace and mercy. We're so grateful, God, that you invite us into the life that is really life. And God, where contempt and anger just so easily come to us, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to put like just a pause in that moment. And even now, Lord, as we think about our relationships, our friendships, our sibling relationships, our relationship with our parents, God, would you just spur on ideas of ways in which we could respond that de-escalate and don't always have to respond evil for evil. So God, we bless you and we invite you into this in the name of Jesus, our Christ. Amen.